Welcome to The Power to Create Yourself with Ross Rameen. If you or someone you are close to is dealing with addiction, there are so many programs out there that can help you. But how do you gauge which ones are going to work the best for you? Some are expensive, some deal with some of the issues, but don't get to the heart of the matter. Others treat the problem at a basic level, but don't determine ultimate success. Join us now for an hour that sets out to be truly groundbreaking and will help you discover how to find the best program for your addiction problem. Now, here is Ross Rameen. Hi, good morning, and welcome to the show. My name is Ross Ramin, and we're coming to you from the Rebos Treatment Center in Los Angeles, California. We're so glad that you joined us today. We have a great show today. We have Dr. Alan Berger um, joining us today. He is the multi-author of many different books on uh, substance abuse and treatment and all sorts of other great things. Uh, He's joining us now. Dr. Berger, welcome to the show. Well, Ross, good morning, and thank you for having me today. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Berger, we, last week I was in uh, West Palm Beach, uh, Florida at the Big Breakers convention that's thrown by foundations. And I did a, did a, uh, a talk on, um, and different levels of treatment, where treatment is now, where it should be, where we were hoping we were going to be. Uh, one of the topics that we had done, and I did this as a joint um, a joint talk with Erica Spiegelman, who you know well, who is the author of Rewired, of uh, the book. And her and I were digging into uh, a variety of subjects, but the biggest one that we were talking on was where treatment is today and really where we aren't and where we need to be. And I think that's where one of the days, you and I have known each other for a few years now, and I think that's where we really hit it off. You and I, we really got to know each other through how you connect with clients, how you connect with families, so on and so forth. And one of the, one of the topics that we were going against was is there's so much watered-down treatment for such a life threatening disease that's killing, you know, statistically, depending on what you read, between two and 300 people per day. And I guess it just statistically depends on who's paying for the research. Um, so I think that was the biggest thing in the, in the way that you do treatment with gestalt therapy, um, your multi, all your books that you've written. Um, I think it's a great subject for us to start on today. Where do you see treatment today? Where, where are we going? And you got into this industry a couple decades ago. What's your yeah, thoughts on yeah, this? Yeah, quite some time ago, actually. I've I've been in the field for over four decades now, so mm-hmm. over forty years of uh, experience in the field, and I've seen a a lot of innovations come into the field. I've seen a real push recently for medically assisted uh, recovery, uh, drug replacement therapy, and and other forms of interventions from the uh, medical field. So there's been a ton of different changes. You know, we, we were talking the other day, and I told you a very interesting statistic, is that no matter how many new innovations that we have, the numbers pretty much remain the same in terms of people getting help. About 2 out of 10, sometimes it might be 3 out of 10, depending on what's going on, but around 2 out of 10, maybe sometimes it's 1 out of 10, People remain sober the first year after getting some help, and that's whether they go into a treatment program and or whether they just walk into the doors of a program like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. So there seems to be a real interesting baseline that two out of ten people 
stay the course after that first year. Now, the first year becomes real important because if you get past the first year, your chances go to 80% of the people stick around. Wow. So once you get past year one, it's a really critical thing. So the big question is, what's happening in this year one, and how come we don't seem to be doing any different now that we've had things like trauma treatment being now used to help people with addiction problems or gender-informed treatment where we're trying to help people address issues that are more related or specifically related to their experiences with their gender. We seem to be getting so... So so what's interesting, though, is that nothing's changed. So the question becomes, Ross, what's happened? How come there's no change after we've had these these new treatments being brought into the field? And the answer is, is that it's very hard for people to accept the limitation. What do you mean? And, so, except and that, in and themselves? That becomes, yeah, that's right. A limitation in themselves. See, we're, we're all, we all start very early on in life believing that we have to control things to be okay. And as you know, and I know, that when you try to manage the unmanageable, you just become more unmanageable. You don't get more manageable. And that's the real challenge for people have in terms of how do I deal with the limitations I have and live my life accordingly. So the way I say it is, how can people accept the fact that they've got this problem without subtracting from their self-esteem? How can their acceptance in dealing with the problem add to their self-esteem? Well, the answer to that is that you have to help people change the consciousness that they have. You know, we say all the time the consciousness that created the problem can't solve it. And so that's what we're up against, and that becomes a real challenge. How do you engage people in a way to help them step outside and develop a new relationship with themselves and a new relationship with their problem? And those are the first two things. Actually, there's three things that change in the first year of recovery. Our relationships with ourselves, our relationship to the problem we're having, and our relationship to others in our life. So those three areas are very, very important to address. And our relationship with ourself is in many ways going to determine our relationship to the problems we're having. You know, if I think that I shouldn't have a problem and I should be better than that, then what's going to happen when I go to dealing with a problem I have? It's going to be hard, isn't it? Without a doubt. And that's, and to me, and, we, you know, we've talked a lot about this, and we deal this deal with this type of stuff every day at Rebos, but it's, at the end of the day, you know, that's common. To me, there's so much common sense to treatment. There's so much common sense to just, you know, you want to lose 20 pounds, you want to grow a business. There's common sense actions that need to take place. But, like, a lot of the stuff that you just mentioned, that's... For a client, that's stopping a moving freight train that's a couple hundred cars right. long. It yeah, takes common sense. a freight train doesn't stop on a dime and then sense turn is around. Not that common, is it? No, it, it's so all that stuff that you just brought up is all completely vital to change anything in your life. Really, well, I mean, you have right. to look and at see, where you're at. The issue is here is for a long time we've said, "Wow, this is such a special problem, and it needs to be dealt with in ways different than the." than the general community, mental health community I'm talking about deals with things, but I think we were wrong in that assumption. So what we did is that we isolated ourselves from a lot of the great 
teachings of all of these master therapists. And so in many ways, I think our attitude that we were different really, really separated ourselves and has kept us from growing, I think, better in these areas. Um, Now, listen to this. This is a shocking thing. And, you know, my attitude about this, but the least investment that every treatment program has is in its clinical staff. That's a fact. That's what we did our whole conversation on in in Breakers. It's unbelievable. No, the the, 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 owners of treatment programs do not invest in their staff. They do not invest in training them. They think that that it's these people are trained already because they've been certified. And the truth is, is the level of training that takes place in this field. If you are a certified addiction counselor, it really means very little in terms of how well you've been trained. Well, and, and it's also that, it's like a mechanic, it, like working right. on a car. You can't just be you know, you know, know yeah, how to work on a nineteen fifty Chevy. You, know, you have to know IPT or whatever <laughs> whatever programs teach people to to work on cars. And, you know, just walk out of the classroom and think you're ready to be able to deal with any engine and any problem that walks in. And unfortunately, the training doesn't continue. Now, the programs that I've seen that are the best make a big investment in continuing to train their staff. And at least on a monthly basis, to me, I'd prefer to see it on a weekly basis, that they're, they're doing something. I was very fortunate in my training to be trained by Dr. William Rader in the field of addiction. And every week, our staff meeting was not just an administrative meeting. We would bring patients in, and we would meet them face-to-face. And so in that process that was taking place, not only were patients getting some amazing help from Bill Rader, who was a brilliant clinician, but every one of us in there were learning how to deal with patients. We were seeing what needs to be done, and it was a learning experience for the whole staff. I don't see that happening anywhere, Ross. It I just doesn't my... take place because it takes yeah. a commitment. Our staff meetings were three to four hours long. Wow. Think about that for a minute. Now, everybody says, oh, my God, look at all that wasted time. Well, it really wasn't. Because patients were being brought in, and they were actually having a powerful therapeutic experience. We would take sometimes as much as 10 to 15 minutes with a patient that walked in the room. And so those kinds of things, see, those are the innovations I'd rather us see us doing. I'd rather see us committing to training staff more, helping staff learn things like my addict self-recovery, self-dialogue. You know, I've been teaching that, and you've got a few uh, of your... um, staff in my training program and mm-hmm. they keep bringing this stuff to their work with their patients and it's helping them tremendously i get some incredible feedback and i'm sure you have too from when people learn some of these new powerful things it's amazing in terms of what it does for them clinically i started off my my talk when i was down at um the foundations event and i, I had a few treatment center owners in there and i literally started off the whole the whole little you know hour and a half long um, little talk. I just said I don't believe that this is a disease at all. And everybody you know looks at me like I'm nuts. And I said the way that we are treating this, I, I'm arguing it. It's like is this if this is really a disease that is as deadly as everybody preaches it is? Why aren't we doing more? Literally, why are we not doing more? I see people going into poetry therapies and all these other you know 
hobbies, so to say, which is important to have in treatment because it's nice to learn about that stuff. I became one heck of a photographer um, through the photo class that I took, but that was something I did on a Sunday afternoon. Um, There is so much trauma. There's so much anxiety that each client, each patient has when they come in there that it needs to be dealt with and nobody is like touching on it. No, no, granted, there's a few places across the country that, you know, you and I both know of that deal specifically with trauma, specifically with anxiety, you know, the... Even um, those programs don't have any different results. See, that's what I'm saying. It's not about just dealing with that, but it's about helping people learn how to discover new possibilities and new resources within themselves to start to deal with their problems. They might not have better results. They, yeah. they might not have the better results, but at least some of those places are giving little tidbits of info of that course. that of person course. can All grab onto later on that, in life. That there has, it's not going to be one specific thing, right? No. It's not going to be we're going to find, oh, my God, if you just treat trauma, you're going to be able to help people with their addiction. Sometimes that can be a very, very critical thing and help somebody establish a solid recovery. But I'm telling you, if we get people to start looking at the relationship, the attitude, that our clients have towards their problem and the attitude they have towards themselves and towards their relationship, we're going to do a lot better. Yeah. And how do we get clients? You have to train people. Then how do you, okay, so you train the staff and they're all top notch and they're, you know, they're at the head of their game and so on and so forth. And a lot of the stuff that you touched on is very common sense on how you reach these clients. How do you get a client that has been doing life one way for, let's just throw a number out there, 15 years, 20 years, five years. It's just such a habit. And they've been raised on, you know, through their parents or society, their friends to believe certain ways, to act certain ways. You have to, I mean, that's part of the, I mean, you can tell these people, this is what you got to do, but you really got to go in there like a ninja and change their whole thought process well, and just how they I'm, accept that's things. One of the things I'm saying is that for people to think you could bring somebody in and do a training once and now you've helped your clinical staff function better is really a misnomer. Mm-hmm. Your best bet is to engage with someone who's going to be coming in your program and work with the staff over a year. I was hired by the Betty Ford Center a couple years ago to come in when they were making a transition from the Betty Ford Center to Hazelton Betty Ford. And just before that happened, they had me work for nine months with their staff. Wow. Uh, I would have them uh, twice a week for six hours a day um, for a home at once a month. And uh, that was pretty phenomenal what happened. The yeah. counselors all became so much better because of the consistency and ongoing training. So, see, that's the other piece of it, Ross, is that there has to be a commitment to doing the training but doing it on a regular basis and committing to one particular way of doing it. You know, if you bring in, like you said, you bring in one person that's a cognitive behavioral therapist and then the next week an interpersonal psychotherapy person, well, great, the counselors are going to learn some new ideas and stuff like that, but you don't integrate, right? the new ways of meeting people and having a relationship with them. So, you know, what you're, the question you're raising is, what do you do? Well, you've got to learn how to form a relationship with people. The big it's thing an intimate that, relationship yeah, you need to have yeah, with that it, person. Well, it's a therapeutic alliance is what it is. That's how we describe it now. The therapeutic alliance accounts for more 
of what a therapist can do in the session to help a client change than any other variable in psychotherapy outcome literature and in uh, drug and alcohol outcome literature. So it's the relationship that that person has. And see, that becomes a big thing, the relationship the person has to the counselor. This forces now counselors to take a look at themselves. And see, in my training program, and you know the, the Gestalt training program that actually meets at your center yeah. once a month. Uh, it's a two-year training program. You know, everybody's encouraged to be able to participate personally with their clients and to bring themselves to that. Well, you have to have now look at your relationship with yourself as well and the, your relationship to how you deal with your problems. You know, that's you one of the things I preach. love about this approach to, to therapy is that it's, it's not do as I say, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's do as I do. I mean, it's yeah. that kind Practice of approach. Practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. That's right, Absolutely, man. If, absolutely. If, if, Alan, we're going to take a quick if, break real quick. Um, and then I want to come back and jump on this in just a couple and then get into really what, what tidbits, like if there's a person listening right now that wants to get some help for themselves, just a couple of things that the client can do on their end to kind of put down their guard a little bit. So we'll be right back. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Um, this is The Power to Create Yourself, and I'm Ross Vermeen, and we'll be right back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Getting sober isn't just about not drinking and not doing drugs. It's a way of life. At Rebos, we have a team of talented professionals, each with their own clear and distinct message to walk clients from the darkest point in their lives out into the light. Rebos offers a carefully curated selection of groups and workshops in addition to a minimum of six individual sessions per week. At Rebos, we believe there are no cookie-cutter clients, and we meet every individual where they are at today. It's not a Rebos program. It's your program. Our team wants to help as many people as possible become who they want to be. And if you don't know who you want to be, we'll help you. Visit Rebostreatment.com to learn more about the Rebost Treatment Center. That's R-E-B-O-S Treatment.com. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to The Power to Create Yourself with Ross Ramin. To find out more about Ross and the program, visit the Rebos Treatment Center website at rebostreatment.com. Now, back to the power to create yourself. Hi, welcome back to the show. This is Ross Ramin. Thanks for joining us. We're coming to you today live from the Rebos Treatment Center in Los Angeles, California. And we're lucky to be joined by Dr. Alan Berger, um, who's, uh, you can find him at abphd.com. That's his website. Um, he's got a ton of books and material uh, that you can purchase on his website that has amazing information. Um, Alan, a lot of your books we actually use, um, as you know, um, as part of our treatment program. That's, um, that's right. That's right. Yeah, it's they do amazing groups. The clients absolutely adore them. They are so they're so they're so basic, but they're so 
they have so much information uh, well, to go with to it. Go back to what you're saying. If you look at every one of the things I say in my book, they're common sense, aren't they, Ross? One hundred percent. And it's what you said. It's what happened to the common sense in treatment. Where did it go? <laughs> I mean, what? Oh my How God! We got to bring this back down to the level of of what patients can relate to and and digest and to plug into their life on a daily basis, right? We really need to, one of the things I really harped on last week down in uh, Palm, Palm Beach is really meeting clients where they're at, you know, every single day. You know, this isn't just, I remember going through school and they're like, you need to do these things upon intake and so on and so forth. I'm like, these 12 things never go in order. There is this is just this is just textbook how this is going and all the treatments that I went through it always seemed like we were on some sort of schedule that wasn't me that wasn't my schedule of where I was at for that day I mean and so my biggest question that I have now is I understand you know it's important for the treatment centers to really be responsible of training their therapists more and more so that they are at the cutting edge just like you would for you know, an auto mechanic needs to be trained on how to deal with 2016 cars and then 2017 and 18, you know, so on and so forth. What can a, you know, for the listeners that are out there that are, you know, maybe debating going into treatment or they're actually in treatment right now, what can they do on their end to kind of put down their guard to be able to swallow they have to really look at themselves. There's a lot of pride that might get bruised a little bit. Um, they might have to face some shame. They might have to really look at, oh my gosh, I've been living the, a total lie for the last 15 years and I didn't even know it. There's a, It's just more than I'm just drinking too much or I'm just snorting too much cane, uh, cocaine. I mean, they really have to look at, like, I'm really a mess emotionally, spiritually. And you can have all of the you know, the new techniques, you know, that are out there to touch a client, but you really need, the client really needs to know how to open up. I always tell our clients, I say, there's only so many questions we're going to be able to ask you to get out of you. There's going to have to be a a point where you're going to have to start looking in at yourself and accepting things or pointing out your own shortcomings, your own faults. And they might not be that pretty, but that's okay. You know, we're going to, we're going to pretty them up for you. What what's your advice for those well, people? Well, look, for a long time, the program has uh, every treatment is based on a tripod of honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness, mm-hmm. right? And we talk about those things. That's the how. How do you get well? By being honest, open-minded, and willing. Yeah. Now, if it was that simple, we would be doing a lot better. So the big question comes, well, what interferes with somebody's honesty? and willingness and open-mindedness. And see, this is what we got to get better at doing, is identifying what are the forces in a client that makes that difficult, if not impossible, to do. So what I would say to someone is what what would make it difficult for you to be honest? What would make it difficult? What goes on inside of you? What ideas do you have about yourself or about how things are supposed to be that would make it hard for you to be honest with yourself? So you see, what I try to do, Ross, is get clients to get interested in themselves, not in terms of taking that step towards honesty. They need to take that. But instead of trying to change themselves that way, once they start to develop the awareness of what is making them resist 
that level of authenticity and vulnerability and honesty, then they become more honest and open and vulnerable automatically. You see, there's a paradoxical process of change that takes place. As soon as I say I'm not honest, I become honest. As soon as I say I'm not open, I become more open. As soon as I say I'm unwilling, I become willing. Yeah. And there's no way around that truth. And How'd you do it for yourself? What a lot of people do is they try to change patients. I never try to change anybody. I just try yeah. to help people become aware of themselves. Back when you oh, got, really? you know, you, you talk about this on your website, and so I'm not saying anything that's not already public knowledge. You know, when you were a Vietnam veteran, thank you for your yeah. service. You got, you grew up in Chicago, and you went over to Vietnam. Um, you dabbled before you went to Vietnam, but it really got going big time over there. When you came back, and you were getting sober, what, you know, you, I read about in your bio that you were getting together, you know, with Tom, your, your long-term sponsor that you've had ever since you got straight. How did you back then, you know, you just came out of Vietnam, your re-entry back into civilian life was, you know, rough to be, to put it mildly. Really, really rocky. That's right. <laughs> what, how did you, you know, just kind of, I know it's hard to say briefly, but how did you get to that point of like, you know, how do I, how do I get straight? Right. I want to do this, but how, but like the action, how how do you settle into that action is what happened for me. And this is weird is that even though I went into treatment, there was a part of me that knew I needed help, but I could hardly admit to that part of me. I could hardly allow that part of me to speak and have much to do with my life. What happened is when Tom shared his story, And when I heard how he felt and the things that he struggled with, it penetrated through all my resistance because I saw a man who was free from all of the things that were holding me hostage inside myself, my Mm -hmm. insecurities, my fears, my feelings of inadequacies, you know, my feeling of being less than, my feeling like I didn't belong, that I couldn't, that I didn't know how to accept myself and I didn't feel very good about myself. All of those things were tormenting me, and I know were a big part, you know, as what was driving me to drink and use the way I did. And now I experienced a person who had experienced all that and had freedom from it. Well, that got me interested, Ross. It really did. It got me interested in discovering some new possibilities in my life. And so, like I said, I didn't set out to change any of that. That experience I had with Tom made me much more honest, open-minded, and willing. Because You I weren't even ready for the experience. It just kind of happened. That's right. Yeah, I saw new possibilities. And look, that's the thing, is how do we get clients to be interested in themselves in a different way than they've been? Because they only know one way of de- dealing with things, and that's by drinking and using, right? That's how they've coped for, in some cases, a long time. In some cases, for me, it was, you know, I started at 12, and I got help when I was 19, so I was very, very fortunate to be able to get help that early on. So this last summer, I celebrated 45 years. That's incredible. <laughs> of clean and sober. That's like, wow, that's a lifetime, isn't it? It is. It's an absolute lifetime. It's an God, absolute old lifetime. right now. Yeah. No, you're not. You look great, though. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, is there a difference when you got sober to what is going on now in society with these new pills is there a difference between an addict 
back when you got sober in an addict now. And what I'm trying to say is I find a lot of clients they, they, that come into us, they didn't mean to get to turn into an addict. You know, they had a back surgery. They had a knee surgery. Right, right. And their doctor gave them some just prescribed yeah. medications. Yeah. And they just, they followed, they followed the prescription. They just did what they were told. Where as opposed to where, like I did, you know, I was in high school. I bought a bag of weed. I started drinking right, beer. You're gonna, you're going you know, and then road. I yeah. tripped into a big pile of cocaine. And, yeah. you know, the life, I mean, it was more self-inflicted. Yeah. And so it kind of makes more sense. And I was doing drugs to cover up you know, X, Y, Z, you know, shortcomings I had in my life. Do you look at people that have had, that just got hooked on pills, as I put it, by accident? I have a hard time at at sometimes really saying that, you know, you're an addict. The same way that I would call myself an addict. If I, you know, I don't don't know if you saw the uh, French Connection with Gene Hackman. It's an older film, but, Mm -hmm. you know, he got busted. He was some, I guess, I don't even remember all the details, but... He was a CIA agent or something like that, and and he got you know captured, and they gave him heroin for a couple of weeks, and he got physically addicted. See, yep. many of the drugs that we get to treat pain or anxiety or whatever the case may be have a high addiction potential. Now, when we say addiction potential, it means that the body becomes dependent on that drug, and when you remove that drug from the person, they're going to go into withdrawals. So that's one kind of an addiction. That's a physical addiction. The issue becomes, does somebody develop a psychological addiction? And now do they show other kinds of behavior, not just using that drug all the time and feeling they need it, but do they start stockpiling? Do they start doctor shopping? Do they start taking more than prescribed? That becomes addict behavior. Those other people are physically dependent, and a lot of them just need help getting off, learning how to deal with their pain or their anxiety and stuff like that, and the issue's finished. So, no, they're not, they're not the, quote, classic addict that we've treated before. They're somebody who's developed a problem and used those medications to treat an issue, a specific issue, like their pain or anxiety. And that is mixed in with the group of people coming to treatment right now, Ross. So you're right. There's those people now that are not the addicts that I would that I went into treatment with. We were partying to party, man. We didn't start, you know, we you know we were totally addicted both physically and psychologically to the drugs. And yeah. so there is a difference, and it's important that we're starting to pay attention instead of treating everybody walking into treatment as the same. They're not. Yeah. I think that's, you know, my biggest goal for people when they come into treatment, I don't want to scare them away. You know, I don't want, I really want to meet them where they're at. I don't want to scare them away because I'd say, you know, there's a good, you know, 10 to 15% of people that come in that come into us, just what you just, you know, just what we were just talking about. They didn't get addicted to drugs the same way that you and I got addicted to drugs. We were having a great time. You know, we were right. we were pardoned. We were doing what we did. Totally right. different generations, but the same type of thing going on. And then we get these other people. I get housewives that come in here, and it's like, you know, I, I blew up my knee. I had, you know, had some sort of surgery, blah, blah, blah. And next thing I know, I can't stop doing pills. And now my doctor won't give them to me, and I'm looking other places to get pills. Or yeah. even worse, you know, they're going to mainline some heroin. Yeah. 
it's it's just it's mind blowing that this, this this is what it's going on. And then to be able to touch that client emotionally and be like, you know, it's okay, you've become an addict, but you're not. And they always look at the people that are around them. They're like, well, I'm not like these people. And it's almost even harder to catch them in a sense, to catch right. them and give them a hug and say, we're going to get you through this. They yeah. can't even believe that this happened. It's it's yeah. unlogical. That's How can right. something that a doctor prescribed to me, you know, basically be, you know, he basically put, gave me a gun that I have to, that I'm putting to my head now. He, he or she well, didn't know better. One of the things that we got to watch out about being too passive in our lives. I mean, I talk about this in my new book that just came out in June of this year, 12 More Stupid Things That Mess Up Recovery. And I address many of the chapters in that book or the issues I bring up are related to not being passive in your life. Because when you're passive, then you put yourself in a position where you can be victimized. And while doctors are always, you know, or mostly trying to do what's best for a client, sometimes they don't know what's best. And see, that becomes the problem with the doctor's knows best mentality. And you, you see it in treatment programs. We know best. We know what you need. And medical doctors will tell you, we know best, we know what you mean, and I always run away from that. Nobody knows what you need. You need to be an active participant in your treatment in whatever way you are and pay attention and you explore things. And today, the gift we have, man, there's so much information at our fingertips, isn't there, Ross? It's unbelievable. You want to, you get a prescribed medication, you don't have to just sit there and look at the insert, which are sometimes very difficult to read. You can Google it and say, hey, what are the potential risks of me taking this thing? Is this really something that can solve the problem? What are my better options for treating anxiety? There are many good treatments for anxiety where you don't have to go on benzos. And there are some great alternatives to pain treatment today that we have mindfulness, movement therapies, emotion release therapies. I had a person in my office the other day, she has chronic back problem. The MRI shows no, no structural damage. And I had her making some sounds that, that you know, would express the pain she's feeling. By the time she was done with that, the pain was gone. There's so much mental blockage you know, from helping people get over that, people are so, and, and I say this respectfully to society because I've been, I've been vulnerable too. We take the word of anybody and everybody. I mean, we go on our phone and we go on like Yelp and we yeah. were trying to find a good cheeseburger or a good sushi place and we take a total stranger's suggestion because they've given it four or five stars that this place right. has got the best cheeseburger we've never met this person we have no ideas what they're but yeah we'll go do it it'll be a great time um right. you know we're not even looking at what these pills that the doctor is giving us or the you know wh what's the pluses and the minuses just weighing it out logically and we'll do that for other things in our life you know, when it comes to our kids, when it comes to our pets, I mean, what I do for my dog is just ridiculous. What <laughs> the behind the scenes research I do, what I do for myself, it's, we are just, we, we are such victims to, to society and what they tell us we're supposed to be and what we need to take in order to be this person or to be that person. Um, and everybody is so stuck on, you know, a pill is going to make it better. A pill is just going to take it down. Um, pills going to cause my anxiety to go away or my depression when people really need to be looking at it, it's like are you really depressed or are you just having a reaction to just a really sad event which should be par for the course 
You should just have, you know, a, a loved one dies. You should just be sad. That doesn't mean you need to go get on antidepressants. You should enjoy that emotion. As sad as that emotion is, you should still enjoy it because um, you'll get something out of it. It's it's a natural human, um, it's a, it's a natural human emotion that goes on. It's what your body does. It's what your mind does. Too many people are looking for the. They're looking for the easy way out and hoping to do it. And normally, that easy way out's—it's a pretty—it's got a—it's got a trap door at the end of it. It seems like. It seems like we're going to take another break, Alan. I want to get back to you. I want to get more into your book, and you have a new conference that's coming up. Well, not a new conference, but you have a new partner for your conference, and uh, we'll be right back. This is the power to create yourself. I'm Ross Ramin, and we're joined with Dr. Alan Berger. You can find him at abphd.com, and we'll be right back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Getting sober isn't just about not drinking and not doing drugs. It's a way of life. At Rebos, we have a team of talented professionals, each with their own clear and distinct message to walk clients from the darkest point in their lives out into the light. Rebos offers a carefully curated selection of groups and workshops in addition to a minimum of six individual sessions per week. At Rebos, we believe there are no cookie-cutter clients, and we meet every individual where they are at today. It's not a Rebos program. It's your program. Our team wants to help as many people as possible become who they want to be. And if you don't know who you want to be, we'll help you. Visit Rebostreatment.com to learn more about the Rebos Treatment Center. That's R-E-B-O-S Treatment.com. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to The Power to Create Yourself with Ross Ramin. To find out more about Ross and the program, visit the Rebos Treatment Center website at rebostreatment.com. Now, back to the power to create yourself. Welcome back. I'm Ross Ramin, and thanks for joining us. We have Dr. Alan Berger joining us today, and we're talking about um, all sorts of things from treatment, how treatment should be done, how treatment shouldn't be done, what, what methods are out there, which are good, which are bad. Um, Alan, I want to get into one part of your bio that I thought was really interesting is when you came back from the war in Vietnam, you did not, you were not provided with a reentry program into civilian life. Right. You were at a very, uh, you know, you were an adolescent still, really. Right. You know, you went there, you joined the Marines when you were 17, and you come out of Vietnam, you've seen stuff that most of us don't see ever in 10 lifetimes. Right. And then they're like, here you go, back on the streets. Right. You're yeah, a little shaken me, up. It? It's, it's You've got a so, wicked drug addiction uh, going on. To, to do that to us, yep. <laughs> it's, I, I think they're getting better with that nowadays. I don't think they're killing it by any means. Uh, we get a certain amount of veterans here. My question to you is, is any environment that people are coming from and going to another one, is it's, there's a reentry into it. And I remember going through my first treatment 
And that was my biggest complaint. The reentry was, there was no reentry program. They just told me that I had a disease, uh, that I was wickedly addicted to cocaine, and I had a hole in my soul, and I needed to fill it with something. So movies would probably be a good idea. It was really just, I mean, it was like, that's it? I just, I put myself through hell, and you're just telling me I have a hole in my soul and I got to go to movies now? I was like, wait. Yeah, there's got, there's something missing here. There's we need a reentry program, and I see this still. I mean, it's you see this in treatment programs where clients in treatment for X amount of weeks, months, and you know we've got some loose ends that are going on in there. And then okay, now here you go, you're done. You're you know you've paid your financial things, your insurance is done with you. you now go fly like a bird. It's there's no reentry. That's another big key part that is missing in um, treatment and how they how they go through it. Every other disease, it seems like there's this is what you're gonna do: physical therapy if you have a, you know, if you've had a surgery on a back or a joint or something or so forth. We say go to aftercare. We say go see a therapist, but it's it still seems like you're taking a, a butter knife to a nuclear war. What right. what do you think is missing? Well, look, one of the things I would send people to, if you want to see an amazing website that Hamlet Sarkeesian and his wife Donatella Sarkeesian have done, they've got three short films, award-winning shorts that they've done on veterans. It's called Operation Never Give Up. And if you click my name on that website, you'll go to about a five-minute video that I did talking about helping veterans and what needs to take place. So just to summarize it here, it's a ridiculous, it's absurd that we expect to take a warrior who's been trained to go out and be very, very efficient and effective as a warrior to, that we can just bring him back and say, okay, now you're a citizen without helping that person make that transition into civilian life. And that transition you know, is such an important thing. And we need to find a way to help people make a transition from that one state to the other, from a warrior to a citizen. It's not an easy transition, as many people will know, that have been in combat, that have been into a situation like our Iraqi and our, you know, our Afghan vets now that are back are finding the same problems that us Vietnam vets had. So it's a real challenge. I don't believe i know the military is is working a lot harder they've increased their psychological services the veterans administration is trying to do more and more and so we're responding but it's still not enough so what we need to do is give those veterans a place where they can come and talk about these things and where there's going to be somebody that can listen to them that's not going to get freaked out look i've had there was a counselor at south bay hospital that was treating a Vietnam vet, and the guy was a tunnel rat, and he was in the tunnel with somebody, and he had to do something unbelievable to be able to survive, right? He had to bite the guy's carotid artery in his neck, and the guy's mouth filled up and could still taste that Vietnamese's blood in his mouth. Well, when he shared that with a counselor, Ross, the counselor passed out. The counselor could Mm. not deal with it. So, see, in many ways, we go back to what I was saying before, we got to help our counselors, right, be able to learn how to deal with these things, too. So, um, 
that's the big issue, man, is, is we've got to make people more aware of how to help veterans. There are some good resources on the Internet, but if you'd like to hear me discuss this more, go to Operation Never Give Up and click okay. on my name and you'll see the video I did. I think that's just, yeah, that's, I think that really kind of even comes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's, you really, when a client comes into a program or comes into just a regular therapist's office, one thing I always find so much is, is there's so many counselors that are, it's almost kind of like malpractice. They think that they can tackle whatever it is. And, you know, speaking from the professional, professional side, I always took a lot of pride when I was always meeting one-on-one with people because I was always being like, you know what, I am not the person for you. And we do this here at Rebos too, which is just good. It's just good medical practice. It's good business practice. It's like, you know what, I'm not the place for you. I'm not the counselor for you. You know, you need to go to this person. They can handle it better before getting into it because it puts so much damage onto the client. People get their hopes up. They're like, oh, maybe they can help us. And then the then the, the therapist passes out because of the gruesome story. I mean, that's right. what... see what I'm saying now. Now, you think that counselor is going to want to share that again with the with that, uh, or that patient is going to want to share that again with his counselor? Hell no. No, it's nuts. Of and it's, not, man. It's, he, he was now worried about his counselor. I mean, there's some common sense in there. This this guy was a Vietnam vet. He's probably going to tell me some you know horror stories. I mean, we've and got some gang members. Match that, him, like you said, with somebody that could handle that. Absolutely, absolutely. Tell us about your new book. You came out. You have you you have a series of these. Um, right now, uh, so to date, now I've got actually five books published. My first book was published on relationships and. It really honors the work and the legacy of Dr. Walter Kempler. That Mm -hmm. book is called Love Secrets Revealed, and that's on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Then my first book with Hazleton was 12 Stupid Things That Mess Up Recovery. Now, that book has, since it's been out, and it's almost now 10 years, has remained in the top 20 most of the time on Amazon as a bestseller. It has sold over 80,000 books. Well, so it has done quite, quite well and will continue to do well. I probably sell, or Hazleton sells about 100 of those books every week. So it's, it's been, or more, it's been done phenomenal. And the feedback I've got over people using it, like you guys use it in treatment, many treatment centers across the United States use it. Great, solid book. Second book that I came out with was on emotional sobriety which I think is an incredibly important book, and that book has grown in popularity. Sometimes it's even rated higher on Amazon in terms of selling than the other book is because people really see the value in this whole issue of emotional sobriety and in terms of being able to get a hold of recovery and stay in recovery to sustain your efforts. Emotional sobriety is really important. So my second book was 12 Smart Things to Do When the Booze and Drugs Are Gone, Then we went to looking at making amends, and my third book was The Twelve Hidden Rewards of Making Amends, and that's really about um, going back and cleaning up the wreckage of your past and looking at the uh, therapeutic effects of the 12 steps. You know, a lot of people think the steps are religious or just spiritually based, and my book really explores the powerful psychological forces that are operating in the 12 steps and to show what an effective treatment it is when you step back and look at the kind of technology that it's creating. Now, my most recent book was a follow-up to the first one. It's about 12 more stupid things that mess up recovery. The first book was really directed at people that were in early recovery, the first couple years of recovery. This book is for people that are beyond that. 
and what are you doing in your recovery today that limits your recovery, that limits your possibilities. And that book is 12 More Stupid Things That Mess Up Recovery. And uh, that's also all of those books are available at Amazon, and they're also available on uh, Hazleton website, or you can purchase them directly from me. If you're looking do you have for a favorite? Deal, go to Amazon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Do, you, do you have a favorite? I, I know my favorite is I, I love the emotional sobriety part. When yeah. you brought that to my attention of what that actually is, that was like the bread and butter of everything to me. And it has affected so much of my life from my relationship with my wife to how I run my business, how I treat my clients. Yeah. I mean, no, I think that that theme, and and it's really important because I've taken that theme, and it's really uh, prevalent in each and every book I've written. I tie things into that emotional sobriety. In fact, the next book I'm going to be writing, whether it's with Hazelton or someone else, is going to be called Emotional Sobriety, The Next Step in Your Recovery, and I'm going to tackle that issue directly and head on because we really need a book. There's one out there by Tian Dayton on emotional sobriety, but it's really for the family members that have grown up with an alcoholic parent. A lot of stuff is quite relevant for us, but it really, there needs to be a book really addressing emotional sobriety for those in recovery. Mm-hmm. No, it's, I think that's, I mean, when it comes down to the end of the day, when you're like, you know, I know I'm, you know, I know I'm a drug addict. You know, I can't, I can't drink anymore. I can't do cocaine anymore. Heroin's not a good idea. Yeah. But you know, but you, how the heck you get over that. Life, but then, right? <laughs> yeah, right. How do you keep going? It's right. you. Yeah. How you do and, I deal okay. with life on life's terms? See, that's the challenge for each and every one of us, man. That that have expected life to conform to our expectations. My new book has a whole chapter on that. Expecting life to conform to our expectations is such a setup in a way to sabotage our recovery. And a lot of people relapse because things don't turn out the way that they think they should. Yeah. No, without a doubt. And I think a lot of these books are so relevant for, even if you don't have an addiction problem, you can switch a couple of these words around and it can be really... People say that about 12 Smart Things all the time. If you go on Amazon and review, I mean, there's over 125 reviews on 12 stupid things that mess up recovery, most of them quite positive. And then there's over, I think right now, there's 80 reviews on 12 smart things. And one of the things that people say in that, in the reviews of that, it says that the things that Alan is talking about here are not just for somebody who's in recovery. They apply to learning how to live life in a better way. Yeah. Now, we only got a couple minutes left. I really want to touch on, you're having this conference, The Evolution of Addiction. It's coming up in um, February? Of 2017. Yep. It's the, it's the first weekend in February, February 2nd through the through the sixth, um, or I should say through the fifth. So mm-hmm. the actual conference starts on Friday. I'm doing a pre-conference uh, workshop with Tom Rutledge, who's a brilliant therapist, and that's called Point of Intervention, and it's for counselors and therapists that want to um, really hone in on that moment in therapy when. You know there's an issue going on now. How can I design and create an experience for them to be able to really become aware of what's going on? So that's, this is the, the fourth year Tom and I are doing that, and it's been a phenomenal, phenomenal training experience. So that's available. By the way, if people go to register for that or the conference and they use Burger 20, 
capital B-E-R-G-E-R. Burger may need to be all capitals. I can't remember right now. But if they do that, they'll get 20% off the registration. So the actual conference starts on Friday, and it's called the Evolution of Addiction Treatment. This is our fourth year, and it happens every other year. And we're pleased to announce that this year we're being partnered with C4 Recovery. And I know you've been speaking for C4 Recovery at their conferences. They do the West Coast Symposium on Addictive Disorders. They do the Cape Cod Symposium on Addictive Disorders. They do Core Recovery. They do all kinds of major They're heavy hitters. They're heavy hitters, and we are so, so happy to be able to partner with them. And to, they just saw the value in this conference, and uh, it's going to be a remarkable thing. If you go on, if you just Google the Evolution of Addiction Treatment Conference, you'll, uh, 2017, you'll be able to go to our website and see the incredible lineup of keynote speakers we have, the incredible workshops. I mean, we've got uh, over six, no, or probably 20 workshops being offered. And what's unique about this conference is this conference is selected by a committee that comes together and invites people. And it's very different than other conferences that are generated by sponsors. So if you sponsor a conference, you get a speaker in the conference. This one does not, is not organized like this. A committee comes up with a theme and puts out a request for proposals and keynote presentations, and out of that pool, you get the best of people the best. are selected. We get over 50, 50 workshops, Ross. And so the 20 we select are what the committee feels are the 20 best. Incredible. Alan, we, so, we're, yeah. we're just so about we, out of time. Be there. Oh. I understand. We talked about that earlier. Rebos yeah. has been a big supporter of the Evolution Conference, and just let me put in a plug for you, because I know you for a while. I know when you started this business and what was going on with you and your vision. And what I can say to you is that Ross is real. He's the real deal. He cares a lot. He's really tried to bring something into the field that nobody else has done, is to really create an opportunity for people to have an individualized experience of treatment. And that is one of the things that really distinguishes and separates Ross's and Rebos from the rest of the program. So, you know, if you're out there and need help, I could highly recommend you going over to Rebos. I know a lot of the staff there. He's got great, great people on board. And uh, a program, you can tell how well a program is run by the quality of the leader, and they got a great leader. Thanks, buddy. Well, that's all the time we got today. Dr. Alan Berger, um, you're a stud. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us, everybody. My name is Ross Vermeen. This is The Power to Create Yourself. We'll see you next week, next Tuesday, 9 a.m. Pacific time. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week on The Power to Create Yourself. We hope to have you tune in again next Tuesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition with Ross Ramin on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have an enlightening week.